The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 states that if we admit or acknowledge our sins to God, at that instant we are not only forgiven of those sins, but then we are cleansed of all unrighteousness. Our, our broken fellowship with God is restored. The Holy Spirit's ministry of sanctification where he produces spiritual growth is restored and we can go forward in our spiritual life. God the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us, who makes the Word of God clear to us, enables us to remember it and apply it. He is the power source for the Christian life. So we always have a few moments to make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, you alone are God, and you have declared the end from the beginning. All of history is the outworking of your perfect plan. And as we approach the end of history, whether it be a few years off or a couple of centuries, we're still much closer to the end than we are to the beginning. And we look forward to that because it will bring a complete resolution of the problem of sin and evil in the universe and it will bring full, absolute glory to yourself. For it is at that time that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, fathers, we continue our study of future things in the book of Revelation. We pray that you would help us to understand these things and that we might uh, be edified and enriched in our spiritual life because of what we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When Revelation chapter... Four. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 1.19, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had appeared to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, commissions him to write down that which he will see in these visions. He is commissioned to write the things which you have seen, and that related to what he had just seen on the Isle of Patmos, the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ appearing, not as he had during the Incarnation, 
but appearing dressed in the garments of a priest and a judge. He is white, brilliant white in his appearance. His hair is white like snow. His legs are like burnished steel, bright and shiny. There's this, the whole imagery there is of purification. And he is dressed in a robe that goes down to his feet. He's girded about with a golden sash. And this is a picture of a priestly type of garment. So we see Jesus Christ as the one who is qualified to judge, revealing to John how that final judgment of sin and evil will take place in human history through the period that we know as the Great Tribulation. So he is to, was to write the things which you have seen, and then secondly, the things that are, the things which are, that refers to the seven letters to the seven churches which we studied in Revelation 2 and 3. And then the things which will take place after this. That takes us to verse 1 of chapter 4 where the apostle writes after these things and then at the conclusion of the verse, the things which must take place after this. Those phrases connect us back to 119 that there's a shift in the scene. There's a shift in the vision. Revelation 2 and 3 focused on the church age and the trends of the church age as expressed through the seven letters to the seven churches. But Revelation chapter 4 focuses on that which has yet to be fulfilled, that which is even future to today. And it is written for the benefit of church age believers. There's some people who get the idea that why study prophecy? I want something that's more significant, more relevant to my life today. And yet the Bible says that all scripture is written for our edification. Not only that, when the book of Revelation was written, the apostle John wrote out the entire book. He made seven copies of it and he sent the entire copy of the book of Revelation from chapter 1 through chapter 22 to each of those seven churches, indicating that they were to benefit from, study by, by their study of the entire book of Revelation, it was to have value for their life then at that particular time. And by application, that means it has value for us today. Well, as we've gone through Revelation 4.1, we've seen that though this verse doesn't specifically teach the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, its placement in the flow of God's revelation to John, in the flow of what has taken place here, its placement between the seven letters to the seven churches at chapters 2 and 3 and the future events of chapter 4 indicates that it is a portrait, as it were, of the rapture of the church, that the rapture of the church takes place between these two chapters, between chapter 3 and chapter 4, so that when chapter four, the events of chapters 4 and 5 occur, it's taking place in heaven and we see the church already in heaven, already rewarded and worshiping the Lord. That's an important thing to understand. That's a little different perhaps in the understanding you may have had before that the entire Bema Sea judgment takes place Throughout the seven-year period, that's how I understood it until I got into some details of this text. And it becomes clear that there, by the beginning of the tribulation, they're already uh, rewarded and in place. And we'll see some of the evidence for that this morning as we go through the text. Now, the church 
was the focus of chapters 2 and 3. But now the church becomes conspicuously absent from the narrative of future things. In fact, in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the noun ekklesia, which is the word translated church, the Greek word for church, was used some 18 times. 18 times in those three chapters. And the, book, the word is not found again until we come to Revelation 22.16, which is the close of the book when John is again reminded to give this message to the church. So even though most of the events in the book of Revelation don't take place until the future time of the seven-year tribulation, they are to be communicated to church-age believers during the church age. The, there's no other, even an, an allusion to the church between chapters 4 and chapters 22 other than the reference to the bride of the Lamb in Revelation 19.7 as the Lord Jesus Christ uh, takes the church as his bride and prepares to return to earth from heaven. So there's this heavy emphasis on the church in the first two chapters and then Silence about the church, indicating that uh, there's, the church is not there, not present during the tribulation. Furthermore, these 18 times that the word uh, church appears, seven of them are in the phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We saw that just at the last verse of chapter 3. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we have that phrase one more time when we come to chapter 13, verse 9, but the phrase appears in an abridged version as whoever has an ear, let him hear. What is not said is what the Spirit says to the churches. So once again, the church is conspicuously absent from that particular verse. Furthermore, the pictures and the words, the, the symbols that are used, the imagery that's used to describe God in chapters 4 through chapters 19 are words that are more common to the Old Testament and less so in the New Testament. God is referred to as God. He's referred to as the Lord God and the Lord God Almighty, titles that are predominant in the Old Testament but not so in the New Testament. The word Father is not used of God's relationship to believers in this part of the tribulation, which is, I mean, this part of the uh, book of Revelation, which is similar to the Old Testament, where the, the relationship of God as a personal father is not part of the Old Testament uh, imagery. That's something that is emphasized because of the relationship to the church, of the church uh, to the father. Furthermore, throughout the church age, we've seen that Jesus is seated on the Father's throne. This is what we read and studied in Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes, Jesus says, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, that's future, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. During the current age, the Lord Jesus Christ is pictured as ascended and seated with the Father. That's based on the old Latin word sessiona, meaning, which is translated into English as session. So it's referred to often as the session of Christ. Jesus Christ is currently seated before the Father. But as we get into the action, 
this tremendous drama of chapters 4 and 5. And you must understand, I would encourage you to go home and read these chapters three or four times. Read them together. Ignore the verse breaks. Ignore the chapter break. Because it really is unfortunate they put a chapter break here. This is all one singular event that is taking place in heaven. And what we see is suddenly the Lamb takes center stage. The Lamb, as it were, comes off his position as being seated with the Father on the Father's throne because now the the Lamb is going to begin to take center stage and we are going to see the outworking of the judgment from Jesus Christ, from his justice and righteousness on the earth. In Revelation chapter 6, we see that the very beginning of these judgments on the earth are described as the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of of the Lamb. And so, again, with this term, the Lamb, which is a title used 29 times in the book of Revelation for the Lord Jesus Christ, we see a return to a very familiar Old Testament Jewish imagery the Lamb, that is, the Passover Lamb that is brought for the sacrifice. We see it referenced in the Gospels when John the Baptist first saw Jesus coming down to the Jordan and announcing that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But this imagery of Jesus as Lamb disappears from the epistles uh, with a couple of exceptions, but it's not a predominant image in the New Testament until suddenly we get to Revelation and there's a return emphasis during the tribulation period to Israel. Remember, we have to keep God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church distinct. The church began on the day of Pentecost. The church age ends with the rapture of the church when all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, between those two periods, when all believers are taken to be with the Lord in the air. And that's the church age. But the But Israel preceded that. The Jews were called by God through Abraham, Genesis chapters 12, 1, verses 1 through 3. God called out a new people, and God has a special plan for them, and those plans are laid out in the Old Testament, Old Testament covenants. So there is a return now in Revelation 4 to an emphasis on Israel. Israel, and so the imagery that we see is more uh, more common to Old Testament passages. Furthermore, we see in this section the emphasis on the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of God. This seven-year period is portrayed as the wrath of the Lamb first and the wrath of God second. So we have to ask ourselves, what is this term wrath? Mean? What does it picture? Does this mean that suddenly God has just had it up to here and now he is really, really mad and he is just going to lay it in to the human race? Or is this a figure of speech? And I would suggest that it is a figure of speech for the outworking of God's justice. And we see this all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, this terminology related to the wrath and the anger of God. But wrath and anger, as we understand it within a human sphere, is the response or reaction to something that happens, something that we learn. But we have to remember that God is omniscient. God has always known everything. We go back to the Old Testament events in Exodus when the 
uh, Jews are getting bored because Moses is up on Mount Sinai for 40 days getting the, getting the law. God is giving him all of the Mosaic law, and they're bored to death, so they have Aaron come out, and they want to have a big party and orgy, and, and they want to mix that with religion, which was common in their pagan background in Egypt. And so they wanted to have a, a golden calf to worship. And so they uh, begin, they have Aaron construct a golden calf and they worship and they're having this orgy and Moses comes down and afterward God says, I'm going to kill them all. I'm just going to wipe out and start all over uh, with you. And it says that the wrath of the Lord burned against Israel. Now does that mean God just suddenly got really mad at them? No, because from eternity past God knew that was going to happen. God has always known that the Jews on that day were going to commit idolatry in mass. So what is that what does that phrase mean? It actually is a figure of speech. Even in the English and there there's it's funny, I've gotten into some discussions of this with uh, other pastors and theologians and they'll say, You can't say that's a figure of speech. See, that's one of the things you get into in in a current a lot of current especially Old Testament studies, is a debate whether this, this figure of speech, it's called an anthropopathism. I'll give you a definition in a minute. Anthropopathisms really exist, or does God really have uh, these emotions? And so I remember getting in a discussion with one guy one time, and he said, you can't say that's a figure of speech. God is, is angry, with, with truly, literally angry with Israel. And I said, well, wait a minute, let's look at the Hebrew. The Hebrew phrase for anger is not a literal phrase. There's no word per se for anger. Like you have, have a word for anger in Greek. You have thumos and you have orge. But in, in uh, the Old Testament, the, the Jews all often anchored emotions in parts of the body. And so if a Jew is going to say that you really got angry, he would say, your nose burned. Your nose just turns red. You know, when you get really mad, your face turns red, and your nose just lights up. Well, that's what they're saying is, his nose burned. So if you literally translate that passage in Exodus, it says, God's nose burned. Well, does God have a nose? No, he doesn't have a nose, and it's not burning. So you see, it starts off with um, actually what's called an anthropomorphism. Um, anthropomorphism comes from the Greek word anthropos, meaning man, and morphe, meaning form. And it's uh, a figure of speech where God uses language of accommodation to ascribe to himself human physical characteristics, which he doesn't actually possess. Remember, God is a spirit. So he doesn't actually possess eyes or nose or ears or fingers or toes or things like that. So when we write, see a phrase like God wrote the law with his finger, that is an anthropomorphism. So these, these uh, figures of speech are used to communicate certain things about God's essence, his policy, his plans, his acts in human history, and language that you and I can understand. Some writers say this is language of condensation, where the eternal God, uh, I didn't even say that right. Condescension. Condescension, thank you. My... Tongue got tangled in front of my eye teeth, and I couldn't see what I was saying. What was that again? 
condescension. I'm having trouble with that word this morning. Condescension. So the infinite God condescends to us so that he expresses his infinite character in a finite package, something that has some meaning and point of reference to us so that we can understand what he's saying. Well, that's an anthropomorphism. So when we read God's nose burned, that's an anthropomorphism that is an anthropopathism. Now, an anthropopathism is the same thing. It's from anthropos, meaning man, and pathos, meaning feeling or emotion, where certain emotions, human emotions, that God doesn't actually possess are ascribed to him in order to communicate to us in a frame of reference that's common to us that we can understand his plans, his purposes, his essence, his actions, things like that. So we talk about God being grieved or sorrowful or uh, that he has vengeance or hatred or anger. These are all words that indicate uh, some aspect of his character so that the wrath of God is a term that is used, an idiom that is used to express his the outworking of his justice. Sometimes we have a similar type idiom when if we go to court and it's the, the, we have a saying, the judge threw the book at me. Does that mean the judge lost his temper and literally threw the book at you? No. It is simply a, an expression, an idiom, to understand that, the, that we felt the fullest extent of the law, and he let us have it. And so that's the idea here. And so when we come to these phrases, the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of God, these are expressions showing that God's justice is being poured out finally upon all of the sin and evil in human history. And last week, I focused on that particular doctrine, on the principle that God eventually brings history to a close with this final climactic judgment. And for much of history, God in His grace has shown forbearance and patience towards the evil of man. And we often run into people, I pointed out last time, who say, who are, and, and are truly hung up with the problem of evil. They they have difficulties understanding how there can be so much sin and so much suffering and so much famine and war and all of this uh, in human history. It's, where is God? Why doesn't he stop this? And how can, if you believe in this good, loving, all-powerful God, how can you, how, how can you, uh, how can you rationalize that in light of all the sin and evil that's going on? And normally this is, constructed along the lines of if God is truly loving and absolute good, absolute righteousness, and all-powerful, how can he allow evil? And I pointed out last time, just by way of review, that it's important for us not to rush into this, the answer to this question too rapidly. Unfortunately, many of us like to show what we know and answer the question too quickly before somebody is ready. Proverbs warns against this, don't answer a fool according to his folly. We need to stop and just ask a few questions, and perhaps we can prepare them through our questions to be more receptive to an answer. And I often uh, point out that when you do this, stop a little bit and just ask them questions. Well, what do you mean by 
suffering? What do you mean by evil? And what is your explanation? Obviously, you've thought a lot about this, and you've rejected the view that uh, Christianity has, that God has a greater good in mind. So how do you explain the existence of, of evil? And how do you explain the existence of suffering, and if you don't believe in God, what what purpose is there? And see what we're we have we're forcing them to do is to show that they don't have an adequate explanation either. Unbelievers like to sit off on the sidelines and and fire uh, barrages at Christians simply because they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and they don't have an answer. If you start off with the presupposition that there is no God and that evolution is operative, then evolution can't take place unless there is death and suffering and struggle because you can't have the survival of the fittest without struggle and without death. Something doesn't survive unless something dies. And so death and suffering have to be a good within the evolutionary framework in order for there to be advance and to go forward. So you either have the camp that says, well, there's suffering in the world, but it serves a purpose, and ultimately they can't say it's wrong or evil because by making those kinds of statements, what they're actually saying is there is an absolute category of good and evil that we can apply to this. Well, where do you get your absolute category of good and evil? If there's no God out there, then you have to just generate it uh, from within yourself. So is this just you or is this cultural? And you can just get them all wrapped up in a lot of, lot of stuff. But the point is, is to get them to think, think it through because within their framework, they don't have an answer. And there's no resolution. The other answer that people have is that evil is just a figment of our imagination. It is, it is not real. The, the physical world in which we live isn't the true, true real world. There's this ultimate world of the mind or the spirit. This was a platonic approach. You also find it in the mind science cults and in mind science religions like uh, Christian science. Uh, Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy had a number of health problems, and she said they're not real. It's just a figment of, of uh, our imagination. It's, it's, it's just a mental thing. We have to learn to control that. So there's a denial of the existence of evil. But for Christians, we believe evil exists, that there is uh, undeserved and unjust suffering in the world, and many people experience that. But uh, even though we don't see the resolution of that in our life, and even though we see unbelievers who are hostile to God who appear to go through life without any divine discipline, without any judgment from God, what Revelation tells us is that there eventually is judgment coming. And God has forestalled that judgment in order to give more and more people the opportunity to freely respond to His grace and to His provision of salvation. Because once God judges... Volition ceases, the human history ceases, and there is judgment of all those who have rejected him. So as long as he gives man freedom, and that includes the freedom to reject him, to disobey him, and that is what brings about all of these evil, horrible consequences, then as long as there's freedom in the world, there will be sin and suffering and death and injustice 
in the world. But eventually, Revelation tells us, God is going to bring about judgment. So, John is in a point of learning how this will take place. And he says, after these things, the events of Revelation 2 and 3, says, I looked, which is a word common to prophetic literature indicating a vision, an old word, English word used of a prophet was a seer, someone who sees into the future. So he says, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And this is a, the word standing open, as you see in the text, standing is is in italics. It's not in the original. The English translation, though, is trying to uh, make clear the grammar of the text. The word for open is the verb anoigo, which is a perfect participle in the original. Now, perfect participle is a participle whose action precedes the main verb. The main verb here is I looked. So what the image that we see is when John sees this and he sees that open door, it is already open. It's already open and it is prepared and ready for him to enter. So we could translate this after these things. I looked and behold, a door was already open in heaven. And then we read, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, And this is the Lord Jesus Christ. If we turn back just a couple of chapters at Go to Revelation chapter 1, where John is on the Isle of Patmos. In Revelation 1.10, he says, in very similar vocabulary to what we have in in 4.1 and 2, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, which indicates that he is in a particular state of mind that God gave him as an apostle for the reception of divine revelation. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now, he doesn't hear a trumpet. He is just just comparing the volume and the intensity of this voice, this sound, to that of the blast of a trumpet, the blast of a bugle. And he says, I heard this voice. Now, the same voice is occurring here as occurred in Revelation 1.10, and that's the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's this voice, and the voice says, Come up here. It's a command. Come here immediately. And I will show you the things that must take place after this. So he goes up, and we have four openings here in the book of Revelation. This is the first. And what follows the open door in four one is the bringing forth of the seven-sealed scroll. The seven seals on the scroll are the seven judgments that take place in the book of Revelation. As I pointed out before, the seventh seal is open, and it's really seven trumpets. And then the seventh trumpet is open, and it's seven bowl judgments. But the seven bowl judgments are the seventh trumpet. The seven trumpets are the seventh seal. So there's seven seals on this scroll. And this scroll, as we'll see, is a title deed. It is that which gives the kingdom to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in order to activate the title deed, he has to open the scroll, the, the seals. 
And that's the judgment that judges and purifies the earth in preparation for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom on the earth. So the open door of 4.1, the first open in Revelation, precedes the judgment of the scrolls. When we get to 11.19, we're told of a second opening, and that is that the temple of God was opened. And the context, once again, involves an intensification to the next stage of divine judgment. Then in 15.5, we read that the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And this context leads to the introduction of the next judgment, the seven angels with the seven plagues coming out of the temple when they are given the seven bowls for the seven bowl judgments. So each of these mentions of the word opening precedes an intensification of the judgments in the tribulation. And then finally, the last opening in Revelation is Revelation 19.11. Heaven is opened and Jesus Christ descends to the earth in judgment with his heavenly armies and we will be with him as he comes to the earth to destroy the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan. Now in verse 2, John is immediately, as he hears this command, he is immediately put in this state of being in the Spirit and he is transported mentally possibly physically, he doesn't make it clear, into the throne of heaven. And he sees a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Now we see this initial scene in Revelation 4 and 5 is that of the throne of God. It precedes all of the judgments. Revelation, as I pointed out last time, isn't written from a human perspective so that we can find out what's going to happen in history. See, that's how most people approach it, and that's usually the hook that a lot of prophecy teachers use, is that you need to know what's going to happen, what's coming up in history. But what's coming up in history can't be understood if we don't start with God, if we don't start with divine justice, and we don't understand that divine justice has been violated by the sins of both the angels and man, and there needs to be judgment and a resolution to this evil. So to understand... Where the future is going, we have to understand that this is the outworking of the judgment of God from his throne. The word throne in reference to God's throne is used 15 times in chapters 4 and 5. You think that indicates emphasis. The focal point of these chapters is the throne of God. And as John's eyes are drawn to the one who sits on the throne... He describes the throne of God and the presence of God and the throne room of God in terms that are built upon images from the Old Testament and very similar. And I think it's important for us to take a look at some of those scenes. We could go to Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, well-known scene. When Isaiah is commissioned to be a prophet of God, he is brought into the presence of God in heaven. And we read in Isaiah 6.1, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Now, we have a lot of introduction into angels and the study of angels in chapter 4. So, this is just a beginning of our introduction here that one of the higher class, classes of angels are 
seraphs. That I-M ending is a reflection of the Hebrew plural. So we would translate it more just seraphs, but the Old King James and New King James both retain the transliteration with the I-M. So Isaiah says that above the throne of God are these seraphs. Each has six wings. Just remember that alliteration there. Seraphs have six wings because we will run into other similar creatures, angelic creatures, who have four wings. So seraphs have six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Now seraphs and cherubs and the living beings of Revelation 4, the only ones that we know of, who have wings, so most pictures of angels with wings is not necessarily biblically correct. And they cry out to one another. They sing in this antiphonal choir. Now, I'm making a point of this. They're singing out to one another. So there is one seraph on one side, and he cries out or sings, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then he is answered as in an echo by another seraph who says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then another says it. So there's this uh, antiphonal singing going on in heaven. And that's important to understand a passage we'll look at in just a minute. Verse 4 reads, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So here we have a picture of the throne of God. There is this train of of gods that fills the temple. He is surrounded by these angelic creatures called seraphs who have six wings and sing out in praise of his holiness. Now the next passage we should look to in the Old Testament is in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1 dealing with the inauguration of Ezekiel's ministry. And there he has a vision of the throne of God. And there are also certain parallels and similarities between what Ezekiel describes in the throne room of God and John. Ezekiel 1.22 describes the likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. Now, I want you to notice that he has living creatures there from the Hebrew word chayah, meaning simply living ones. It's a noun, and it just refers to living ones. Some, I think Old King James translates living beasts. Others translate living creatures. They are living ones. They are a classification of of, uh, angels, and we know later on, that these are cherubs. And cherubs here have four wings. So we read that, that, uh, that these living creatures, not only are there seraphs from Isaiah, but there are also cherubs around the throne of God. And above the throne of God, there is something that is almost indescribable. He says it is like this translucent crystal that is just stretched out over their heads. We'll see something very much like that when we come to Revelation 4.3, it says, And under the firmament their wings were spread out straight one toward another. Each one had two which covered one side, and each one had two which covered the other side of the body. So here we have four-winged angels. These are cherubs. Verse 24, When they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of many waters. So as they are 
moving around the throne, you hear the, the, their wings. It's like the noise of many waters. If you've ever been to some place like Niagara Falls, that's the kind of roar and noise that is coming from these, from these uh, wings. It's not just the ripple of a, of a calm brook in, uh, coming down off a mountain in Colorado. This is more like the, the roar of many waters, like Niagara Falls, when you can hardly hear yourself think and you have to yell to be heard by the person standing next to you. It's a tumult like the noise of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and a voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. And above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was, on the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. So this is Ezekiel's description of the throne of God. In verse 27, he says, Also from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around. Fire always speaks of judgment, purification. All around within it and the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around. See, there's certain similarities here to that imagery of the Lord Jesus Christ as he appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos. And then one more Old Testament passage you should pull together. Wait a minute. One more verse, verse 28. I don't want to lose that. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so is the appearance of the brightness all around it. Notice the mention of a rainbow. Now, historically, a rainbow doesn't appear on earth until after the Noahic flood. Apparently, the meteorological conditions that existed on the earth prior to the flood were such that you'd never had the formation of a rainbow. And there are various meteorologists who have put together uh, various discussions on that uh, because of the fact that the way that, that God had constructed the atmosphere prior to the Noahic flood, this would not have taken place because of different, you know, it, it takes certain temperature variables and ice crystals and things of that nature to create the, the, the proper situation for a, uh, for a rainbow. And the rainbow, though, ultimately comes out of the throne of God. because Ezekiel puts it in the throne of God. John puts a rainbow around the throne of God. And then into human history, we have a rainbow inserted after, uh, after the Noahic flood as the sign of the Noahic covenant that God would never again judge the world by destroying it by water. He will judge the world again by fire, but never again by water. And so the rainbow was a sign of the permanence of that covenant. So every time we go outside and we see a rainbow, it's to remind us that we're still under the Noahic covenant. And part of the Noahic covenant, of course, includes the authorization for human judicial systems, especially in the execution of capital murderers. And so capital punishment was authorized by the uh, Noahic covenant, and that's just one of the many provisions uh, in the Noahic Covenant that are still in effect and symbolized by the presence of a rainbow. So every time you see a rainbow, not only reflect upon the faithfulness of God, that he will never again judge the earth by, uh, by water, but he's also authorized the execution of criminals. 
the use of the death penalty. Furthermore, he's also authorized eating steaks. That, that can, eating meat came out of that too for all you meat lovers out there. So you can't get a biblical rationale for being a vegetarian. There may be other reasons, uh, diet, whatever it may be, but don't try to get a biblical rationale for it because the authorization and mandate to eat meat was laid down in Genesis chapter 9. Now, our third passage from the Old Testament, Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. There, Daniel uh, sees the throne of God and says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days, this is God the Father, was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Again, this picture of light and purification, Daniel 7.10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, and thousands upon thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. So he is surrounded again by angels. Now let's go back to Revelation 4.3. There we see this description of the one who sits upon the throne. He is The one who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone, a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there's a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Well, why does he use this term jasper? Well, it's not the modern uh, term that's usually referred to by the jasper. If you look that up, uh, you will see a sometimes a yellow stone, sometimes it's, uh, it's an opaque stone. But in the ancient world, this word jasper, which is the Greek word, referred to a diamond. It is a clear crystal. Remember that picture that we had back in uh, Ezekiel of this crystal over the throne of God. So it's a similar, uh, similar imagery. The diamond uh, sparkles, reflects light, refracts light. Its impression is that of crystal purity, and it pictures the glory of God. And it does so in Revelation 21:11. uh, That's the jasper stone. The sardius stone is translated a carnelian in most modern translations, and this is a better translation. The carnelian was a stone that was blood red in color, and the uh, red color speaks of the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is His shed blood that made purification possible. Now, these stones are also included in some important descriptions in the Scripture. They're both used in the breastplate of the high priest of Israel, but in reverse order. The uh, uh, sardius first and the jasper uh, second. The jasper is linked with the tribe of Reuben, and the sardius was linked with the tribe of Benjamin. Also, these were part of the breastplate, the parents of the Prince of Tyre, who is a picture of Satan in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13. These same stones are also part of the foundation of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, 19, and 20. But the overall appearance and imagery here is that of great, uh, great beauty. The rainbow here is not the multi-hued rainbow that we're familiar with, but is one that is all green, a green rainbow, an emerald rainbow. So we have a picture of a diamond, 
a ruby and a rainbow, valuable, uh, precious stones. And then around the throne we have 24 thrones. And on these thrones, John says, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns. And the word there for crown is stephanos, not diademos. Diademos is a crown of a ruler. Stephanos is an award crown. So this is a crown that is given as an award for having victory over something. They had crowns of gold upon their heads. Now, there's a lot of discussion, various interpretations of who these 24 elders are. There are some that say that these 24 elders are angels. There are others that say, no, these 24 elders are men, but their 12 represents the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 represent the 12 uh, apostles of the church. So who are these? Are these men or are they angels? Well, we're going to demonstrate from the text that they have to be men. And this is based on four lines or five lines of reasoning. First of all, the term elder or presbyteroi is never, ever used of angels. Anywhere is it used of angels. In fact, it, it has the idea of being older, and since angels don't age, that wouldn't quite fit. So, but primarily, it's just the fact that the term presbyteroi never refers to angels. Secondly, the number 24 is a representative number. Not that, I'm not saying these are symbols. I'm saying that the 24 uh, was a group that, of priests that came before God. In the Old Testament, in First Chronicles uh, 24, 3 and 4, we see that the priesthood, all the numerous priests that Israel had, were represented by 24 priests serving in the temple. Those were the representatives. In First Chronicles 24, 3 and 4, we read, Then David with Zadok of the sons of Eleazar and Ahimelech of the sons of Ithamar divided them, the priests, according to their schedule of their service. So they had an organization. There were always 24 serving in the temple. Uh, there were more leaders found of the sons of Eleazar than of the sons of Ithamar, and thus they were divided. Among the sons of Eleazar were 16 heads of their father's houses and 8 heads of their father's houses among the sons of Ithamar. So 16 and 8 is 24. So you had these 20, always 24 priests serving in the presence of God. You didn't have the whole vast mass of priests serving before the throne of God. In the same way, you don't have all of the church age priests serving before God. We are saved to be what? Priests and kings. And that's what these 24 elders are doing. They're serving as priests before God. And so they represent the entire mass of church age believers. Now remember, at this time, only church age believers have been resurrected. According to Daniel 12, 1 and 2, Old Testament saints are not resurrected until the end of the tribulation period. So all that you have in heaven that's been resurrected at this point is church age believers. So these represent the church age believers who went up at the rapture. Third, the white garments. They're clothed in white garments, and these are the white garments of those church-age believers who are rewarded for being overcomers. Revelation 3.5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, 
Revelation 3.18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed. See, in context, white garments are never mentioned as clothing of angels, but as clothing of men. And they are part of the award package to believers in heaven. They're used such in later on of tribulation saints in the book of, of Revelation. Fourth, the golden crown, as I mentioned, uh, is, is a, a translation of the word Stephanos, which indicates a, an award or reward crown, not a diademos crown. And then fifth, these 24 elders are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Angels aren't redeemed. This is not only a strong argument for understanding that the 24 elders can't be angels, but it's a fabulous argument that the rapture must have already occurred. Not only that, but that that the Bema seat of Christ is over with. Let's just look briefly at a verse we'll come to much later in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. There we read, And they... And it's talking about two groups of heavenly people here in Revelation chapter 5. You have in verse 8, we read, Now when he had taken the scroll, that's the Lamb, the four living creatures, that's one group, and the twenty-four elders, that's the second group, fell down before the Lamb. So we have on the one hand the four living beings, just like we have back there in in, uh, uh, that same word used back in Ezekiel. And we had 24 elders, which represent the church, and they fall down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I think that's referring to each of the 24 elders serving in priestly capacity, the prayers of the saints. That's a priestly capacity. So the first group is the 24 elders, and they sing. Now, remember I said that those those angels... The seraphs that flew around the throne of God sang out antiphonally. One would sing, and then the other would sing. Now, if if we were to have the um, reading of Scripture here antiphonally, where this side would read one verse, and then this side would read another verse, I would speak of all of you reading the psalm, right? But then not all of you would be reading every verse. This group would be saying one verse. This group would be saying another verse. That's the picture here. So what we have is the first group, the 24 elders, praise the Lamb, and they say, You, the Lamb of God, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us. Now, look at your Bible. Do you have us there? I'll suggest that if you have a New American Standard or a New International Version or some of the other modern translations, you don't have an us there. Now, that's really important because there's actually only one manuscript, an Alexandrian text, that omits the us. In most of the ancient documents, both in terms of the... the the, uh, uh, critical text and the majority text, most of them have a reference to us, first person plural in this verse. So they say, have redeemed us to God. Well, angels aren't redeemed. So the 24 elders are singing this and they're saying, you have redeemed us. So it has to be human beings. 
You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of what? Every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's exactly how the church is described in the New Testament, that we come from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The church is made up of everyone from all the nations, all the people groups on the planet. And then the second group answers, these are the living beings, and they say, and you, talking to Jesus, the Lamb, you have made them, that is the 24 elders, kings and priests to our God. See, that's what we are to do. We are going to reign as kings and priests with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall reign upon the earth. So Revelation 5, 9, and 10 emphasizes this. Now, this is, there's a textual problem here. I don't usually like to take a lot of time on these, but I thought this one's important. If you look at the screen, I have Revelation 5, 9 up there in four different uh, translations. The first three are English translations, uh, formal English translations, New American Standard, the NIV, and the New King James. And the last one is a translation of the majority text. Now, if you'll note, in, Rev- in the New American Standard translation at the top, it, I have men in sort of in purple, and there it, they translate it, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain, and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Not us, but men. But it's in italics. There's no word for men in the text. The NIV also inserts the word men. They didn't even go to the uh, extent of italicizing, which they should have because it's not in the original at all. There's no word for men there. And then the New King James, which is based on the same reading as the majority text, you have the phrase, have redeemed us to God by your blood. There's only one text that doesn't have us in it. And yet that's the one the textual critics always always go to. And I think there's a theological agenda there because they don't hold to the to a pre-trib rapture at all. And this necessitates a pre-trib rapture. So the majority text is translated, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Revelation 5.10, I have the same chart there. There the NASB and NIV insert the word them. Thou hast made them, that is men, to, to be a kingdom and priest to our God. In other words, the way that the NIV, NASB, and other modern translations handle this is to make it seem as if the angels are singing, talking about what Christ did for the human race. But the majority of documents, both the majority of, of uh, the majority text as well as the majority of documents in the critical text have us there. They have made uh, excuse me, uh, the, the NKJV has us, but they have the word them there. They have the other uh, reading us in uh, verse 9, indicating that you have two different groups singing, and they're talking about the fact that, that uh, one group is talking about the fact that Jesus Christ redeemed them. Now, that gets into a lot of technicalities, and we'll cover it in more detail when we get to chapter 5. But since we're introduced to the 24 elders in chapter 4, we have to understand who they are. They are the representatives, priestly representation of the church age believers. And they have already been rewarded. The Bema seat has already 
taken place. And now they are worshiping God and calling upon Him to to execute judgment in planet earth. And then in verse 5 we read, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the uh, seven spirits of God. And there's four different places in Revelation. Revelation 8, uh, 5. Revelation 11:19. I'm not going to take time to go through these verses now. And Revelation 16:18 has the same imagery. It is, it, it, it's a, it precedes and introduces the judgment of God upon the earth. So the stage is now set. We just have one more set of people to look at: the living creatures in verses seven and eight before we get into the action. But that's what John is doing in, the, in chapter 4, is he sets the stage, he describes the players, he describes the scene in tremendous detail, and then the action comes in in 5.1. So we'll come back next time with our study, uh, and conclude the study of what's happening around the throne and who's around the throne, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to Uh, be reminded of your faithfulness, the fact that you are the God who is going to work out justice in human history. Above all, we thank you that you provided a perfect salvation, that in your justice you imputed the sins of all mankind to Jesus Christ, and that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. And that through that act he paid the penalty of our sins so that all we must do to have salvation is to put our faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right where you sit, all you need to do is to trust Christ as your Savior. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin. This is your opportunity to determine your eternal destiny. All you have to do is trust in Him. At the instant that you do so, God the Father knows what you're trusting in, and at that instant you are saved for all eternity. Now, Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we've studied this evening, or this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.